This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 22, recorded on January Hello, folks, you are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Keller and Dr. Fawner. How are we doing today? Pretty good. Can't complain. No, very well. You, you have that introduction down to the science, you know. That yeah. is pretty much pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Almost as if I'm a scientist. Who would have thought? <laughs> I would never confuse you. Just by running into you with a scientist. With someone other than a scientist. That's right. So uh, how's the uh, semester kicking off? This is our first uh, episode of the year 2020. Oh my, it is. And episode 22nd on January 22nd. We did not plan that. It just just happened. Well, this was planned for tomorrow, so. (laughs) That's right. It was, it was. And uh, how's, uh, you you had a few lectures uh, this Mm, semester already, haven't you? Quite a number, it seems already. And labs. Yeah, we have we, a lot, particularly with MMS and Uno. Well, we're going to slow there. down after this. I was going to say, is this front-loaded for you guys where it kind of curtails after this? We don't have the luxury of doing nothing like oh, you do in physiology. I knew I opened, <laughs> I opened myself up to... Yeah. Well, that's, that's why on. we're here on time. Uh-huh. I see, I see. Well, while I'm wasting time in my office, I can at least... I don't know, uh, get research going and, and t- come up with try to come up with that. Today's scientific event, you can come up scientific with that. Scientific event. I think that was you, Delbert, right? Oh, yeah, I like this one today. The January 22nd one. So what was this? Uh, so on January 22nd of 1968, Apollo 5 was sent into space to, ta- to test the lunar module in a space environment. So the lunar module would later take astronauts down to the moon's surface. Uh, allegedly, right? <laughs> well, in the case of Apollo 13, it was their habitable kind of life pod whenever right. the right. Uh, spaceship was irre- irreparably damaged. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Like and uh, this, the, the one on January 22nd of 68 was the first uncrewed flight for the Apollo lunar module, which uh, I learned, uh, looking this up, that they actually called a LEM. Mm-hmm. L-E-M, even though it's lunar module L-N, but apparently it used to be lunar uh, sort of like excursion module, oh, and then okay. they changed the name to the lunar module, Yeah, and see, which is why the LEM hung around. Fascinating. That movie Apollo 13 makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. I thought when they said LEM, it was this unknown fourth crew member. <laughs> That's a joke, obviously. Yeah, so uh, now it turns and this the uh, lunar module would later carry astronauts to the moon. And uh, the Apollo 5 on 1968 uh, was lifted off using a Saturn 1B rocket into the Earth's orbital uh, flight. And uh, particularly what they tested on uh, this day in 1968 was the descent and ascent engine systems for the lunar module and its ability to do that and separate uh, these two stages. And it turns out uh, the descent engine would become the first incident of a uh, rocket engine that had a throttle that fired in space. Throttleable. Throttleable. Thro- awesome. Throttleable. Throttleable. Apparently it is a word. Yeah, apparently it is a word. Throttleable. Good. I'll leave it to you. Throttleable. Also, the mission uh, performed a simulation of a landing abort in which the ascent stage engine would be fired while still attached to the descent stage. This was referred by the engineers as fire in the hole test, which was also depi- depicted on the insignia patch for the mission. Isn't that cool? This, this has given me the urge to do so a much podcast on the lunar module. The lunar module, trips into space. We could do that. My favorite Excited. topic, black holes. I mean, we are Star a Trek. science podcast. Not or we can just make our way into Star Trek and stuff. Sure. I'm down. So, this is very interesting, but I take it you couldn't find anybody's birthday today. No, I found good ones, but they were not 
interesting to me. They may have been interesting to you guys, but they were. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they were not. <laughs> they were not interesting to me. Chris, like, we're doing the research. Yes. <laughs> the birth, the birth of every scientist is of interest to me. That's right. And That's right. To the community at large. Yeah, they, they they didn't have any anybody that you know did something. I mean, they all did great work, but nothing that I looked at and was like, huh. That's something for the podcast. <laughs> okay. But also uh, happened today, I forget the year, uh, the first and only incident of a, it was an American woman to get hit by space junk. Oh, wow. Uh, that fell out of space and apparently a, a six inch piece of uh, space junk hit her in her in the shoulder. And she lived? Survived, yeah. Really? Yeah, it was that apparently really, really, really small. And this is one of your neurons. <laughs> <laughs> this is something you knew. No, no, I, I, I came I, across. No, yeah, yeah, I came across it while looking this up. I was going to say he's a repository of fun facts. <laughs> fun facts. We should, we should put you on Jeopardy. We can train you. We to should, but we got to hurry then. You know, I had, I had so many uh, immunology fun facts that the students didn't find that much fun. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like, so I was lecturing on uh, immunoglobulins, though, one day in MS1, right? Sure. And we were talking about IgM antibodies and IgAs, and they're joined together by a J chain. And it happened the day I was lecturing. Uh, it was the anniversary of the discovery of the J chain by the scientists. And I was like, oh, it's today's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they looked at me and they're like, no one cares. No, 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 so. <laughs> no one cares. Hey, before we begin, I want to give a, a little... Um, preview of, of, of our newest segment since it's at the end of the podcast that's right so if if you're pausing halfway through you might want to at least get to the end uh because we have prizes now for, yes we do for our new segment guess the microbes so and we're going to give our first prize today and we are going to get the first prize we will be covering get to getting to that later but i just wanted to throw it out there so if you're listening at home you know to at least wait until no, it's a end. little sneak peek yeah. yeah, wait for the prize at the end. And there's a, definitely a prize. We've got it right here. And or uh, if we bore you, fast forward 40 minutes. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm getting at. That's five minutes. That's right. <laughs> but why would you fast forward? Because today we have a... Yes, what are we talking about? So we have a pretty relevant topic, I feel. Um, timely. Become very timely. And in the past few years, it's become, I think, a little bit more uh, infamous, let's say, and, um, you know, prevalent in a lot of sports, but also in a lot of other uh, professions and in everyday life. It's the um, prevalence of TBI, which is known as traumatic brain injury. And so TBI. I think I'm getting one right now. Just uh, I can tell. Listening Both to you of guys. you are showing <laughs> symptoms. Uh, your eyes are drooping a bit, uh, coming in and out of consciousness. I'll see if I can alleviate some of those symptoms, though. Uh, usually TBIs can result from a violent blow or a jolt to the head or to the body. So and contact sports is a, yeah, is a big... That's uh, where, the, yeah, that's, I think that's where all of this is yeah, where we're stemming gonna, from. It's not, I mean, it, TBI has been around a long time, but... Very long time, I yes. think just the, the plethora of, of, of players that have TBI is yes. becoming more to the forefront. And something that we'll discuss maybe towards the end, and we can branch this off into another podcast in and of itself, will be how TBIs or um, multiple... TBIs and concussions that will be sustained can eventually lead to the development of CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Mm -hmm. But we can save that for the very end and discuss yeah, that sure. a bit. So if you think about it with a TBI, this is when an object, you know, here is either compressing on the brain tissue or in other more severe cases, penetrating the brain tissue, maybe like a bullet or even a shattered piece of the skull, which is pretty horrifying to imagine. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about a TBI, even something very mild that maybe one wouldn't consider a full-on concussion, you're affecting brain cells, right? You're affecting the neurons and nerve signal transmission in the brain. Um, then when you get to the more serious TBIs, that's when you get into brain bru uh, bruising, uh, torn tissues, bleeding, and a variety of other types of physical damages to the brain. So... so is there a medical definition with TBI as to what constitutes uh, trauma? Or because you said you can have a mild one. You, are we talking more like classification or what are the details that allow? Yeah, so are, are there to, different classifications of TBI? I would different grades. Yeah. I would say yes. I don't know the exact specifics, you know, grade one, grade two, sure, things sure, like sure. that, or what the differentiators are. But I mean, 
I think one of the reasons why TBIs and concussions sometimes are missed or go un, un or underdiagnosed is because, you know, symptoms can vary. And anytime you're eliciting this trauma on the brain tissue, it can be evident immediately, or sometimes these effects can't be seen for days, weeks, up to potentially months. Right. So um, another kind of thing just in the background and to educate um, in hopefully our listeners on the TBI is the fact that when they discuss and are going through the diagnosis of the TBI, usually use the term called a mass lesion, which again, sounds like a pretty scary term. And uh, physicians will refer to a mass lesion as an area of localized injury that can result in the creation of pressure within the brain. And uh, different types of mass lesions can include hematomas and uh, cerebral or brain contusions. So for our listeners, uh, what are hematomas? When you get a hematoma, basically it's a blood clot that develops within the brain or on the surface of the brain. And these can typically occur anywhere within the brain tissue. They can occur between the different motors, like the dura mater, the protective covering of the brain, inside of the skull, uh, between the dura mater and the arachnoid layer, um, basically you know, blood clot developing multiple different areas. So it can be inside the brain, putting pressure on the brain. It can be between the brain and its protective layer. Yes. Or it can be on the outside of the protective layer, putting pressure on the brain. Yes. What about contusions? With a cerebral contusion, typically that's referring to bruising of the brain tissue. And this is something that while we were discussing this, um, Dr. Keller and I were talking about um, with cerebral contusions, which you can compare to other bruises that occur in other parts of the body, these can be detected via microscopy. Now, obviously, with the cerebral contusion being detected with the aid of a microscope, that's usually found in somebody who's deceased, I would imagine, right? right? You're not going to be putting a brain under a microscope with a... Lipid. Maybe you are. Well, I mean, maybe that would explain <laughs> a lot of my symptoms in my everyday life. But so, uh, for, for, the, for that, is it... Uh, Pretty much micro, uh, microscopic tears in, in capillaries. Yes. So basically comprising areas of um, injured or swollen or the swollen brain mixed with blood that's coming out of arteries, veins, capillaries, etc. And, and, and is, that, is that more common in concussion than uh, hematomas, depending on the uh, strength, I guess, of that concussion? Uh, I would imagine so, yes. Uh, and they... They can occur anywhere, but they're more commonly observed at the base of the front parts of the brain is where you see a lot of these cerebral contusions. Is there a reason for that? Mm, not that I'm aware of. So most commonly at the base or the front parts of the brain, uh, could that be due to the area of impact maybe or shape of the skull from the inside? skull, yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> So, a lot, again, a lot of different types of these um, hemorrhages that can occur that can describe the bleeding that occurs within the brain tissue, right? Um, you can have an intracerebral hemorrhage, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is evidenced by bleeding into the subarachnoid space. Um, so, effectively, for our listeners that don't necessarily know these terms, uh, we're just talking about uh, because of that contusion, because of those tears in the capillaries and veins, you're looking at bleeding inside the brain, effectively. Bleeding inside of the brain. And, you know, a lot of these different types of, especially when we're talking about a subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, this can occur uh, with even mild head trauma. So if you think about this with any kind of contact sport or any individual who might be more prone to falling down or hitting their head, um, you know, this head trauma can occur and induce a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Now, most cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage are mild, but depending on how it progresses, you can get the development of more serious cases such as um, hydrocephalus. And hydrocephalus is just the buildup of fluid inside the brain? Inside the deep cavities of the brain, right. yes. Okay. So, yeah, um, very scary. Uh, I've never... I've been fortunate enough to have never experienced a con uh, concussion or... Yeah, I don't think I've ever had one either. You just don't remember. 
that's also <laughs> no, I, I don't believe I ever have it either. No. No. I it may be close, but right. I remember one time in, in the winter we were at uh, a nursing home in when I was in high school visiting the the uh residents. Like there. doing a volunteer work? Doing right? volunteer work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we were leaving leaving and the stone steps were iced over. And I and they were oh, probably four or five steps high and mm-hmm. I slipped on the top step, landed Ooh. on the sidewalk on my ear, got oh, a cauliflower Jesus. ear. Yeah, Ooh. you know where it gets all uh-huh. swollen. Not, not, not. And I, I, I was dizzy the rest of the day and vomiting. So that was no. Well, I mean, and the nurse just say, just had me sit there. Right there. Yeah. My parents picked me up. Those yeah. are the old days. Yeah, how we rushed you to the hospital. Yeah, you would have been given time off and sequestered and probably get a trophy. Yeah, maybe <laughs> or some anti-inflammatories. Yeah, I don't. Least, I don't think yeah. I've ever had one. Though. So I've never been diagnosed with one, right. but I, I remember that still today. Right. That was pretty dramatic. Yeah, I've never been hit in the head that hard, but I still have a few more years of my life, so uh, we'll see. Wait till you have just kids, Fawn, or just a few. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with any kind of traumatic brain injury, you're going to be inducing the uh, different microscopic changes in the brain. And again, with ranging from mild TBI to more severe TBIs, um, these microscopic changes are, just like it says there, so microscopic that they typically cannot be seen using CT scans. But again, thinking about these severe cases of head trauma, um, you're affecting axons of nerves. Um, once you affect the axons of the nerves and affect neuronal circuitry, you lead to impaired uh, function. Possibly, if you continue to sustain head trauma, it leads to the uh, inevitable gradual loss of axons. So, and the general consensus is that there isn't too much neuronal uh, plasticity, right? That these things, when damaged, although they might be able to do some repair, within there's not... reason, within right. a certain limit. And yeah. It's a very narrow limit, right? Now, different studies have shown, and I guess it's been long debated, that, you know, there is some evidence of plasticity and then other studies have come out it's a very disputed uh, topic and area there there are evidences of plasticity but there's also evidence that it's not that plastic depends on the study that you're looking at right um but for the most part with these sustained incidences of tbi if you damage enough axons or injure enough of these axons uh, leads to decreased communication with these nerve cells and you eventually lose higher level integration in the brain, which again can result in some pretty severe disorders and disabilities in the affected individuals. And and all of these symptoms in terms of behavioral symptoms uh, that are seen with CTE, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to depend on uh, what area of the brain gets the most amount of damage exactly. right, continuously. And again, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you think about the wide variety of symptoms that are observed in individuals who have been uh, diagnosed with CTE after they've died, um, what, aggression, dementia, forgetfulness? Behavior um, changes. I mean, that's it's vague. Large-scale yeah. behavioral changes. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it took kind of so long for this to be, I guess, connected to you know, these, this concussive trauma to me is startling because CTE has only really become more, I guess, infamous maybe the past last decade, decade or so. Right? Yeah, last decade. So again, we'll talk about CTE and introduce that more towards the end. But um, these are scary. These traumatic brain injuries, even a mild type, can be very scary. Anytime you're messing with the ability of the brain to function or you know, disrupting blood flow to the brain. That's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. So, okay. Yeah. Any other uh, types of injuries that the uh, brain can have? You, you mentioned skull fractures at some point. Yeah, so skull fractures can occur, you know, um, simple breaks or cracks in the skull. Again, I like how using the terminology there, simple breaks or cracks in the skull. Yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't want to undergo a simple or mildly simple break in my uh, skull. But, or any um, bone for that matter. The, the, the really large concern here is if there is some type of compressive force that's going to cause a skull fracture, 
you have to think that what's underneath that skull, what's the purpose of the skull, well, to protect the fragile brain tissue. So um, a lot of a lot of things can result from these skull fractures. If you fracture the base of the skull, um, you're looking at injuries to nerves, arteries. Um, if that fracture, powerful enough, extends into the brain sinuses, you could lead to leakage of CSF from the nose or ears. Again, something, uh, that's really bad, isn't it? And you see that a lot with increased uh, intracranial pressure, right? If you have increased intracranial pressure, well, liquid has to have come some, CSF come out, out of somewhere ears yeah, yeah. and nose. Um, and again, different treatments for this to help to alleviate, you know, this leakage of CSF. Um, some of the leaks will stop spontaneously. Other times you have to insert like a drain, like a lumbar drain um, inside. Um, but again, these are just different kind of symptoms and side effects of uh, severe skull fracture and compression of the brain. So, in, in, I mean, in addition to... Uh I guess some of the microscopic uh, effects with uh, skull fracture, I mean, you may have puncture into the brain tissue itself, right? Exactly. With, with a bone or you said earlier as well with uh, bullets, right? Exactly. Yes. So um, as we've been kind of leading to and discussing, um, there are treatments available, but you have to, you have to imagine and conclude that depending on the, rate or the extent of the damage and especially the region of the brain that's going to be affected uh, some of these treatments might not be sufficient it's very hard to reverse this damage once it's done um, especially when you're talking about the brain tissue so what what are before we get into treatments i guess what are what are some of the symptoms that uh, come with say uh, mild let's let's do mild brain injury first so a lot of symptoms, right? Um, these symptoms are wide-ranging, and um, you said, Dr. Keller, that yeah. whenever you fell down, you experienced some of these symptoms, right? Yeah, definitely. I remember being dizzy, uh, being confused. It was very cloudy. You know, it's like if you wake up from a long nap or, yeah. you know, or, or maybe have the flu or something. Um, you know, other other symptoms, maybe even loss of consciousness for a few minutes. I mean, those those, those are going to be immediate early symptoms. Right. Um, headache, definitely. I had it. I don't. I remember I had a headache, but you know, it probably it depends on what part of the brain gets affected too. I mean, you have may have um, a loss of speech, a loss of coordination. You know, um, which is usually transient, but um, could be severe. Um, loss of uh, appetite, loss of sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe the opposite. Maybe you know drowsiness. Um, Thinking about like you know nerve transmission too, and the associated sensory symptoms and photophobia, right? Sure, uh-huh. photophobia is yeah. one. Yeah, that's a uh, sensitivity to light. Mm-hmm. Um, it's vision. such a very you know it. To me, these symptoms are similar to encephalitis. Viral encephalitis is something that we, we right. teach a lot, of, which is not mm-hmm. not common. Fortunately, but um, it, it just depends on what part of the brain's affected. You can see a variety of symptoms, but I think that you know, the, the, if you think about concussions and and, brain, and probably being one of the more mild forms of, of brain injury, yeah. you know, the, that's what we're talking about. Like the the confusion, mm-hmm. the you know, you, you watch these football. Football. This is. I mean, you watch football players stand up off the field and you they just, just look know. around. They're like, yep. "Where am I?" You know, and they get let off the field. Yeah. And I think that's what we're talking about. You know, and then you have these, those are the, these are the short-term mild symptoms. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about it in terms of uh, inflammation, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's traumatic injury like this. Sure. Or concussion or a disease, well, you're looking at the same inflammatory conditions yeah. being turned on that are causing these symptoms. Yeah. 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 So not only the, the initial kind of injury itself, but then what's happening afterwards. Right. What cell, what immune cells yeah. are turned on, yeah. what products are they secreting? It's all cytokines. Side side exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the one of the most common symptoms of viral encephalitis, at least with with like herpes, is uh, behavioral changes. Yeah. Mood swings, um, lethargy, confusion. And these Which, are definitely cognitive symptoms that you see just like that with a concussion. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 TBIs. And I guess this lies in the challenge of not only diagnosing um, different types and different grades of concussions, 
but also in how to effectively treat these different TBIs and concussions yeah, and so the forth. Man- I think it's more management than treatment. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's even as we talk about like diagnosing and when we talk a little bit about CTE in a few minutes, it's it's almost impossible to diagnose CTE in a living right. individual. Right. Research efforts are underway. But for biomarkers, yeah, we'll, for talk, biomarkers, about them. we'll talk about sure, them yeah. later. But, yeah. but, you know, everything we just mentioned were more mild symptoms associated with, uh, I'm sorry, um, symptoms associated with mild TBI, right? But yeah. depending on, again, that force of impact, if you have uh, moderate to severe types of TBIs, um, whereas before, if it's more mild, you can lose consciousness for maybe seconds to minutes, more severe, you're going out for several minutes, potentially even hours, right? Um, persistent and long-lasting headache, just an exacerbation of all the symptoms yeah. that we just well, talked about. I, the, the symptoms of, the, of mild, the mild symptoms are going to be there. I mean, these are just right. much more severe and pronounced seizures. Right. Convulsions yeah. as well. Con- yeah. Uh, like we were talking before, the fluid drained from the ears. Right. Yeah. Plus the loss of coordination, the loss of speech, the fatigue, all that's still there. Well, in, in some extreme cases, in some really extreme cases of uh, injury to the brain where it's going to get so inflamed, uh, it has no space to swell. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll open up your skull, right? Then, yeah. And they'll effectively give it room to, yeah. uh, to swell before, yeah, before the swelling goes down. Yeah. yeah. And I think something that sometimes goes not unnoticed but maybe isn't appreciated as much are the like long-term mental symptoms and cognitive defects that can occur with a more severe type of TBI again like confusion agitation combativeness combativeness yeah um and even depending on how severe it is you could be looking at you know long-term uh coma and again, sure. we're talking about the extremely severe range here, but it's it's very uh, scary just what can happen. It seems logical and obvious. You get hit in the head, you affect the brain, this happens. But in terms of treating and managing these symptoms, um, there's a long road ahead of us to effectively combat yeah, these It could symptoms. be lifelong management oh, yeah. and treatment of these symptoms. Especially with some of these sports that we're going to reference at the end of yeah. the uh, episode. Sure. You know, and as far as the cognitive and mental symptoms are concerned, uh, with the profound confusion, agitation, uh, other sort of combativeness, unusual behavior, mm-hmm. it is not that dissimilar to uh, patients with advanced dementia or advanced Alzheimer's. Yes, true. Where they have similar symptoms. And it turns out if you look at these uh, the pathology of the brains uh, for both these patients, uh, CT or TBI or Alzheimer's, they have uh, similar shrinkage in uh, certain areas of the brain. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you guys had uh, looked up some uh, data and trends, right? So this was uh, last reported. I found data from as recently as about 2014. And at that time, there were approximately 2.87 million uh, diagnosed TBI cases in the United States. And this was tabulated from visits to the emergency department and to uh, hospitals. It's a good percent. I mean, I mean, that's roughly 1%. I mean, roughly 1%. A, yeah, a little bit less than 1% yeah. of the U.S. population. Where did you, you find that? From PubMed? Or from uh, I believe that... That just to give our Yeah, I'm not surprised they haven't done another one with all the other studies. But yeah, well, just to I give mean, an idea, that's a very reputable resource. Yeah, yeah. well, CDC is always at least a, like there's never last year's data. Like it's never. Always, it's yeah. I was just looking it for takes the, time. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I just did HIV. I was looking for the updated uh, UN AIDS even, uh-huh. and it's been three years since they published it. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. vaccines for the masters tomorrow, and I was looking for updated measles data on the CDC. There's not 2019 data. Well, hopefully what they do post is correct. So They do, yeah. Time. It takes some time, well but they correct. eventually uh, put it out there for sure. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's a wide, it's a very large and to me alarming number. Three and million, I would almost hope, three million. Yeah. Wow. And I would hope that since then with increased efforts to protect, you know, uh, children and even adults in sports, um, 
it, the number one treatment for TBI is obviously prevention. Prevention, right? Right. right, right. And um, sure. the thing that I found alarming about this statistic is of those 2.87 million documented cases, one that third, included yeah. mm-hmm. over 837,000 that occurred in children. Yeah, that's you, that's the crazy part. One third is children. And you also yeah. have to imagine this: these figures and these data are underestimates, yeah, right? Probably. There are many. I couldn't even tell you how many cases probably went undocumented and undiagnosed. Well, I mean, we've had firsthand experience uh, teaching uh, at a liberal arts college with uh, you know uh, football teams where sure. where or other other teams. Literally, I mean, we'd have students tell us. Oh, I'm hiding my concussion from my coach because he benched me. Yeah. Right. And and yeah, so many underreported cases of uh, people getting uh, these sort of concussions that they just don't report. Yeah, I'd be interested to know of those 837,000 reported children having TBI. How uh, what the breakdown is between say teenagers and and younger yeah. children. Yeah. Yeah. Because you would think you know teenagers contact sports. Sure, I get that. But you know we've been sitting here talking and. When we were doing, um, we were talking about uh, fractures, skull fractures, a little mm-hmm. bit ago, and just a uh, memory popped up in my head from being at a swimming pool party with one of those big outdoor pools, and sure, sure. some kid slipped and fell, wham, hit his head, yes. and, and cracked his skull. I mean, yeah. he was okay, but mm-hmm. had to go to the hospital and right. did, did uh, staples. But, yeah. but, but that, that would count. And so, that you know, I, count, I just yeah. wonder what the breakdown is between, I mean, it makes sense to say, well, teenagers are playing contact sports and they're putting themselves at risk for a lot of these brain injuries. But mm-hmm. how many happen in children falling down and, well, let's face it, kids can do stupid things. Yes. I'm just telling you, like, how did you get up there? Yeah. So yeah. of those roughly 3 million uh, estimated, again, we think it's an underestimation, a gross underestimation. But of those roughly 3 million uh, traumatic brain injuries, uh, how many were hospitalized and how many ended up in deaths? Um, in terms of hospitalization, about 288,000. So, again, 10% roughly. Yeah, large percentage. It's a lot lower than I would think. Yeah. I guess. Again, I'm just, well, and then you have the 2.53 million who what? Uh, visited the emergency department. Either, right? either good or, I mean, you can look at it as being bad. A lot of people with concussions. Be, Thinking, I'm just going to treat it at home. I'm just going to take an NSAID, maybe. Tough it out. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I was thinking they were because well, if these were reported, I would be thinking that they were they were sat at home. At least one yeah. from the doctor. Yeah. yeah, yeah so they, right. they were at least yeah. seen. So it's yeah, not that they true. were at home thinking, hmm, you're correct. okay. You're yeah. correct. They must have been seen. And and the fact that there's only fifty-seven thousand deaths. Yeah. I mean that I you know I'm thinking sitting here reading some of these symptoms and hearing you guys talk about the different. You know what's involved with the the pathology behind it. Well, I think this is uh, this is under the classification of TBI, right? So yeah. this TBI related deaths that could be due to not only concussions and compressive force, but anything coming into the brain. Tissue. Sure. So yeah. gunshots, the head, gunshots, yeah. intentional self harm, exactly. Mm-hmm. So ve- ve- vehicular uh, mm-hmm. crashes. Oh yeah, definitely. So thinking about it in that respect, and again, knowing that this is probably an underestimation, about fifty seven thousand TBI related deaths. Is fairly low. That's yeah. that's how I feel too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would I would see it. So that's as well. that's a good thing. So even though, uh, which means maybe we're talking about a disease with more morbidity than mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we do have people living longer, but if they're having behavioral changes like changes like that long term, that can really affect their quality of life. That's right. Now the one kind of statistic that again is a bit more disheartening. I know we were taking an optimistic uh, stance here. But um, tracking the total number of TBI um, cases that were diagnosed from 2006 to 2014, there was a 53% increase. So a pretty startling increase over a span of about eight years. Yeah, um, I, I, I was looking at that and I was thinking the same thing. Like, you know, that's a dramatic increase. But then how much of that is really awareness and uh, starting to learn how to diagnose these things better and sure. sort of being more vigilant as a society, particularly in contact sports where we take concussions really seriously. We say one is one too many, right? I, sure. I, 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 my, I would hazard to guess that this is a lot of that is uh, just uh, increased awareness. Yeah, um, better uh, being more vigilant. 
Yeah, I, don't, symptoms I don't think a million more people decided to go knock their head against the wall or something. No. Right? I mean, you I, never I'm know. Just, <laughs> I'm, no, I, I'm with you. I'm, 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 I'm more drag about, racing, more car there, crashes. Well, there's yeah. more accountability, not sure. just, not just. Uh, look, when I was a kid, I don't remember TBI being a phrase we used. It was concussion. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. And something there's not even talk about concussion. You know, we're really talking about different, a different variety of of, yeah. of pathologies, but the clinical symptoms are all the same. And, and you know, what, what, one one statistic that I also found interesting. It's not something I necessarily thought about. Is that it is also uh, there's a high percentage. It's common with uh, veterans in the military because yeah. of uh, like so being knocked off if uh, there's a bomb that explodes yeah, or sure. something like that. And then, yeah, injury, yeah, 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 absolutely. And again, not to we don't want to take this as an opportunity to uh, not really scare anybody, but to bash you know like sports and the. Uh, consequences of playing in a really physical sport, like let's say um, football or no, there's safe ways to play. Yeah, yeah, but um, just to set the record straight, in um, when we were discussing the TBI-related deaths, it was reported that intentional self-harm, um, motor vehicle crashes, and unintentional falls were the most um, common methods of injury that resulted in those TBI-related deaths. So in terms of severe enough um, brain injuries that resulted in death, largely falling in the arena of um, self-harm, falls, and motor vehicle crashes. 32.5% were self-harm. Yeah. I mean, that, that just, that's a staggering and, and sad statistic. It, right it's, it's, yeah, it brings yeah. it down a bit. Yeah, maybe something for to discuss later. But of, all, of, all de- of all deaths, not all of TBI. Of all deaths. Yeah, 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 not of all TBI right. cases. Yeah. And, and remember, but still a death, large number. It's a large number of, of deaths. Um, you know what I find really interesting? If you look at the per patient population, the highest um, rate of TBI deaths is in, in older people. Yeah. Um, my guess is probably due to falls, but you know, the, the age population greater than seventy-five years of age had the highest rate of of death due mm-hmm. related to, to yeah. TBI. Yeah. yeah, followed by um, the sixty-five to seventy-four-year-old population, and then fifty-five to sixty-four. So this is more the deaths are seen in older people. Maybe they're not as um, as plastic, right? Or, right, or, yeah. or it's just you know they're more prone to to injury as we get older. Sure, the body begins to heal. You know, go downhill a bit. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Um, so, did anybody want to sort of say anything else about these before we get into solutions and treatment? I think we covered pretty well the background. And You said you want to come back to CT at the end? Yeah, we can talk about okay. CT as kind of a wrap-up. All right, how about, uh, so how about like solutions initiatives? Uh, what is the government doing? What are our sort of national agencies doing in terms of uh, surveillance, things like that? Well, the good news is, I mean, this is not something that's being taken lightly. Um, Efforts are underway for kind of novel initiatives and solutions to the problem. And um, the CDC is actually um, working to develop different programs to address what has now become a public health problem. And um, they began pilot testing this survey concerning TBIs experienced by children and adults uh, what was it, about a year and a half ago now, fall 2018. And based on those results, they're going to be developing a national concussion surveillance system. And by collating and collecting all of, that, all of those data, what this concussion surveillance system hopes to do is to help with, number one, prevention, right? Because that's the most straightforward and easiest solution to this problem. Um, they're hoping to improve the prevention, care, and recovery efforts uh, and, you know, just shed more light on this public health concern. So this will better aid um, the CDC in determining how many Americans get a concussion each year, um, better determining the cause of each of those concussions, and the results would hopefully be used by community leaders and other leaders across the nation um, in kind of uh, de- maybe developing their own specific programs for diagnosing and alleviating and managing 
the symptoms associated with TBIs. Now, there was a bill recently signed uh, mm -hmm. that relates to that, right? It was what, on December 21st, uh, the, 2018? The right? Traumatic Brain Injury Program Reauthorization Act. Yeah. That um, uh, effectively directs the oh. CDC to uh, implement just, a... Huh? Just glad the government did something good. <laughs> That's right. This is good. But CDC does good stuff. CDC does good CDC stuff. CDC didn't put that in the, that in the act. <laughs> no, but the CDC <laughs> needs Congress to give it money, right? Correct. Uh, so the bill directs the CDC effectively to implement a national concussion surveillance program. So, but yeah, you're right. Uh, so thank, thank you, government, for uh, we're doing something <laughs> together and good. That's all I care about. Okay. And again, as with anything, and this is, of course, a common theme of the podcast and something we mention in almost every episode, before you put together and debut an initiative or give plans or recommendations to community leaders, hospitals, healthcare providers, etc., there, we have to collect the data, right? Mm -hmm. We yes. have to collect what are the causes of the concussions, how many are estimated to occur, what are the most recent figures, um, how are they being caused. All of those types of data are very important. Um, just, you know, what, what, what Dr. A was saying just a minute ago, uh, um, you know, about students, oh, I'm not telling, I'm not telling, I'm not telling about my concussion. Uh, you know, I think the numbers that we have reported from 2014, like we said, just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, I agree. And I agree. so this, as you're saying, we need to get that data. We need a, you know, an accurate representation because if you start making policies and, and programs and they're not targeted in the right way, you've wasted your time and money and you're not going to make an impact on the disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like uh, in, in addition to sort of the surveillance and the collection of data and estimates and blah, 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 all that kind of monitoring trends, and uh, I think we need to do more in terms of education of athletes, of coaches in particular, to spot these things and to uh, stress that, hey, we don't want concussions. If you have one, it's okay. Just let me know that type of thing, right? Because, I mean, like I said, with, with the students we used to know that were athletes, they, it, for them, they didn't think it was a big deal. Like, oh, you had a concussion, you get over it in a week or so, and you move on, right? And yeah, that's clearly that's true. I mean, a concussion is mild TBI. Mm -hmm. right. So, Well, different programs are symptoms. utilizing kind of um, almost cognitive tests and assessments where you collect baseline data of a player and then later in the season or during a game, et cetera, if they do sustain a suspected TBI or concussion, then, of course, they're immediately pulled off the field, but then they are tested pretty strictly um, afterwards. And you compare the assessment results from after sustaining that concussion to the baseline results. And if they're not matching up or they're wildly different, well, guess what? You're off the field until right. you're cognition from this assessment returns to normal. But part of the problem, I think, with those assessments is that a lot of it is self-reporting. True. Yes. Right? And uh, particularly on certain levels of professional uh, sort of playing, like college levels, depending on the division, etc., some of these are self-reportable. Yeah. And uh, athletes can lie, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm certain that it still happens, even with, for example, the NFL, um, they have implemented over the last few seasons a very strict kind of do not return to play if a concussion is documented. They're immediately pulled off. But some of these hits I saw even this past season where they get hit, they're pulled off the field, and then I see them back out there like three or four plays later. Yeah. I think to myself, ooh, that, that person should have sat out the entire game. Um, I just kind of think to myself, uh, what is the system? And maybe this can be fodder for another future podcast episode. Sure, sure. But what are they doing in that blue medical tent? Well, I think that this whole movement really started with the NFL. I mean, I, I at least was identified there. Surely, you know, these numbers, uh, a million-fold increase in, what, eight years? That's but, a lot. But I, I think the awareness is there now. Right. The, the momentum is there now. I mean, ever since... I don't know if you remember Junior Seau was the, yeah. you, know, he, you know, that's where it all started when he, when he committed he, suicide. He killed himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and um, it, it all went back to his TBI. And then right. that's where I think the first big link was made and the blue dents appeared. And, yeah. 
you know, but and I they think are the, doing stuff to address this. Like I'm not taking anything away from that. Sure, yeah, yeah. But, no, I think, but, but, but but that's but, where the awareness came from. Right. And then you get so I'm I love football, yeah. right? And I want to see people tackle each other, but you, you don't want to see like what happened. Look what happened to Ryan Clark. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean severe injury. Of what? Uh, he's never going to play damage. Again. Yeah, yeah. He's so never going to play football. Again. I think you're right. They've been doing things, but let's just be honest. That's where this all started. Mm-hmm. Like all of what we're talking about the the awareness, the, the you're, funding. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And that's good. It's a good thing. And I, I do believe. But, but they only start paying attention because of the negative publicity Correct. that came with Correct. those players. Either killing themselves or killing other people, yeah. and and then they're like, well, maybe there's something there, right? They, well, they, that's when there that's was when resistance. Showing there was a lot of pressure on them. My to guess, I mean, they, look, the NFL doesn't want their players to get no, hurt. Of course, but, of course not. Yeah. But I don't think we would have seen this degree mm-hmm. of changes of of acts being signed into to right. law. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. no, I agree. And so be, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please. But, uh, before we get it too much into the weeds, because we're running at about uh, forty-five minutes or so, oh, right? Okay. So. Uh, should we discuss briefly uh, treatments for these things? Sure. Yeah, so we can summarize. We, um, l- so let's 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 do a couple categories. You go to the ER. What do they do in the ER? Or what do they send you home with? And then if you need rehab, what do they do for rehab? So in terms of a trip to the ER and um, that type of care, that's going to of course focus number one on stabilizing the patient and. Uh, promoting the chances of survival of that specific patient. So that could involve um, delivering adequate oxygen flow to the brain, which is of paramount concern when it comes to any uh, injury, any uh, malady affecting the body, controlling blood pressure, preventing further injury to the head or neck, which obviously neck stabilization there would help with that. Um, And then once the patient is deemed to be stable, um, other types of care will be administered. The patient could possibly need um, surgery to reduce any additional damage that can be sustained to the brain tissues, Um, obviously removing any clotted blood, the um, hematomas from the tissue um, to alleviate uh, pressure on the brain and to decrease the chances of damage to the brain tissues. We've already talked about repairing skull fractures, Mm -hmm. and then, as we've said, relieving pressure in the skull. That could involve making a hole in the skull or adding a shunt or drain that will allow the removal of excess fluid and thus uh, the relief of pressure. And what about uh, the medications? What, what do they give a patient to sort of uh, calm these things down? So with different um, medications, that's used to treat symptoms of the TBIs and to hopefully decrease some of the risks that are associated with the development of a TBI. Um, anticoagulants, so that will be used obviously to uh, prevent clot formation. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for the pronunciation yes, guide, by the way. That, that, was, <laughs> that was helpful. Thank you. Well, this is my favorite one. Um, anticonvulsants. So, uh, saying it a bit normally, anticonvulsants. Or not. Well, now yes. you can say that. Well, well, anticonvulsants. Yeah, no. Anticonvulsants. There we go. I got in my head a bit. Anticonvulsants will be there to prevent seizures, depending on if the TBI was severe enough. And um, other types of medications will be there to alleviate the patient's anxiety or fear um, or even um, uh, changes in mood, right? So possibly being prescribed antidepressants, um, anti-anxiety medications, and maybe even stimulants to help to promote alertness and attention of the patient. And in terms of uh, long-term rehab, obviously in severe cases, uh, some people might need rehabilitation for different kinds of therapies, right? Yeah. So in addition, sort of like, uh, yeah, emotional and cognitive, some might need uh, for physical. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a wide range of therapies and procedures that are in store if you sustain a severe TBI. Yeah. Speech therapy is sometimes seen in patients with severe uh, cases, uh, even occupational therapy. Vocational, how do you return to work, you know, weeks or months after uh, sustaining a really severe TBI. Uh, Cognitive therapy, improving memory. Yeah. So a a lot of different things go into the treatment of this type of uh, disorder. Okay. We made it. We made it. Did you want to mention CTE or you want to leave it for another episode? Honestly, I think CTE in and of itself 
uh, again, just for our listeners to give you a morsel of a future future episode, uh, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's a degenerative brain condition that results from sustained repeated brain TBIs. damage and repeated yeah. TBIs. And um, uh, a lot of the more famous kind of football players, uh, you said Junior Seau, wasn't mm-hmm. it Mike Webster too for the Pittsburgh Mike Steelers? Yeah. Um, across all sports, there's usually a kind of sad and scary case of uh, you hear about like a fall from grace, right? Or these individuals yeah. who have severe emotional and behavioral problems. Throw his name out. Uh, Aaron Hernandez? No, I was thinking Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, fine. I, I mean, He's getting in trouble every, every day now. Every day. It's and, you know, it's, it's sad to see because the guy had a promising career. He, he did. flushed it down the toilet. But yeah, he did. I think that's a product, uh, at least partially, of it's, severe hits he took. It, it will end up severe being CTE. I, I think he will end up being CTE well, diagnosed. Well, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, it's gonna sadly, I I think it's gonna end up with someone getting hurt, like from somebody with CTE. And again, this is or, all... from from his situation. Yeah. Either he'll hurt himself or hurt someone else. I, I think that's I, where we're headed with that one. Yeah, again, I mean, just to preface, this is speculation. This of course, is all speculation. Yeah, this speculation. Is us looking at the facts yeah. in a matter of just opinion. But um, wasn't it? Was it a few seasons ago? Remember that nasty hit he took? Was it a playoff game? Yeah, it, was. it was. I, I'm going to throw some names out there. It was Vontez Perfect hit him hard. There you go. And he was concussed. And he was taken off. It was, tra- it mean, was traumatic. Yeah. yeah. And, yes. and after that, he, he just his behavior changed. Whether or not, whether or not it was you know, it just maybe was more evident. Exactly. But, Other factors are of course maybe involved in. But it wouldn't be a surprise, is what we're saying. Exactly. Aaron Hernandez was another one. I mean, that, that special just came out, and clearly TBI played a role in yes. his outcome, which was, again, very unfortunate. Well, and I mentioned this to yeah. um, Delbert earlier, uh, 10, 15 years ago now, there was the case of that wrestler who ended up, um, he killed his wife and son and then took his own life. And when they looked at his brain, it was something along the lines of it looked like the brain of an Alzheimer's patient mm-hmm. and evidence of CTE as well. So in that case, you know, these outcomes from the progression of CTE are not only horrifying, but they can be quite tragic. And I know you had said, Delbert, something that we'll look into in a future episode, but efforts are underway to hopefully find you can't diagnose CTE currently until yeah. after the fact. Yeah, which again, yeah that's, I mean, tragic. that's a sad part about it. But there are efforts underway for different molecules and different biomarkers, immunological markers, that hopefully will be unique to the development of CTE, where you can catch this early and begin to treat it and manage it before something bad happens. When a quick Google search on uh, CTE, other than Junior Seau and Mike Webster, mm-hmm. you've got Andre Waters, Ken Stabler, Chris Henry, Aaron Hernandez, Terry Long, uh, Ollie Matson, all football players. Yeah. And uh, apparently a July 2017 study showed 110 out of 111 I was brains. just about to say, uh, I thought it was over 90 to 95 percent, yeah. but that's very close to yeah. 99, But, uh, you know, we'll talk, you know, so this is not just uh, uh, football, right? There's NHL as well. There's all sure. sorts of other stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I think you're right. I think it deserves its own episode. Okay. Yeah, Let's do sure. that. Uh, Dr. Keller, would you like to uh, take us to our newest segment? Absolutely. So... So, on to our newest segment, Guess the Microbe. Ah, exciting. So, just as a uh, reminder, since this is the second episode, we're we're, uh, adding this in. Each episode, we will present a scientific or medical scenario and ask our listeners to do a tiny bit of research and respond via email at thebiobusters, all one word, at gmail.com. And the winner will be chosen randomly from all the correct responses submitted prior to the recording of our next episode. And uh, the winner will receive a surprise uh, gift and a shout out in just a moment. But uh, how, let's first talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So who's our winner? Okay. We had we had a so, remind us of last last yep, so last episodes uh, for, for last episode's winner. So our question uh, for our inaugural question was. 
What other infection was used to cure syphilitic patients before the advent of antimicrobials? The correct answer is falciper malaria. And congratulations to Jen Hasselu for being randomly selected from those listeners submitting the correct answer. I hope I said your name correctly. It's pretty uh, close. I should know I'm her advisor. Uh, why don't you shout out for them? I was going to say, the only reason she won is because I'm her advisor. That's uh, um, I, I am kidding. No, there's <laughs> no deceit I going on here. That, honestly. No, I'm too... I'm too uh, he, he he would never moral do that to, to undercut this. Yeah. No way. Well, great job, Jen. So Thank this you. was called pyrotherapy, right? Yeah, it was called pyrotherapy. So uh, pyrotherapy was actually used to treat a lot of different diseases at the turn of the, the 1900s, even into the 1920s and 30s before antimicrobials were really invented. Um, and it, it really involved maintaining uh, a very high temperature for a short period of time in the patient, typically using hot air, hot water, uh, hot blankets, like like um, like electric blankets. Um, and we're talking uh, temperatures of 105 and sometimes even higher. Um, in our case, though, something that was used is called malariotherapy. And it was used specifically and solely to treat uh, syphilis, uh, mainly neurosyphilis. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we had uh, anti malarial drugs that we could use right. to treat. Right. But um, I found it really interesting that uh, Julius Wagner, I'm going to say Jarig, probably. Jarig or Jorig, maybe? Won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1927. For giving people infections. For malarial therapy, <laughs> for, for taking people with neurosyphilis <laughs> and infecting them purposefully. The with bar malaria. was really low back then, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck getting IRB approval that's for right, that one. That's right. That's the controversial Wagner. type of medicine that <laughs> used to be cracked. So I, I have a question for you. Yes. And, uh, uh, we're still on, uh, on topic, but just sort of a follow-up. Uh, uh, as we all know, there are m multiple kinds of plasmodium that can cause malaria. Was there a reason that only falciparum was used versus any of the other ones? Uh, my guess would be twofold. One, falciparum malaria does not have hypnozoids. So, sure, you know, you're, you're going to get just a, an acute infection okay. and then you can manage that. And secondly, uh, the highest fevers that we typically see are with falciparum. Got it. So Got it. that's probably why they used um, that over any other type of malaria. Because it's also the most lethal of humans historically has been. So either you died from Tavis dorsalis or you died from <laughs> From malaria, I guess. Okay. That's, that's crazy. That's a joyful yeah. topic. Okay. Well, let's move right. on. So new now, one. New now one. We have a new case. Here. So here's uh, this episode's questions. A little bit of background. In the mid-1980s, picture England. A large number of, of cows began to act strangely, and they had abnormal behavior, difficulty walking and weight loss, and eventually they would fall over, they'd be paralyzed, and they would die. And, and these symptoms then affected some humans with the same thing. You had ataxia, and eventually they become paralyzed, and, and it was lethal. And uh, these people typically, uh, it was determined that they, they contaminated beef from those cows. And this led to the, they, they killed all of the cows in England, because nobody was going to buy them. The infectious agent was eventually identified as a rogue misfolded protein. So today's question is, what was the first identified human disease caused by a similarly misfolded protein? And how was this disease transmitted? Again, I like it. Again, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, this, one's, this one's good. I like it. Um, and so please send uh, your responses to thebiobusters at gmail.com before the next episode. And you can win a prize as well. Jen, you, you have won a giant microbe malaria, since we did malaria, uh, deliverable to, well, probably post-bat class, right? I'll, I'll deliver it tomorrow because I've got Beautiful. class uh, tomorrow with the master's. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I'll like deliver that. it in class. She yeah. won't know yet because we're just recording. That's now. right. Unless she listens overnight, I'll post it She today. could. Probably studying, but well, she should be, be studying. a surprise for tomorrow. Okay. Well, good job, Jen. Well, thank you. That is our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. I'm Delbert Ebi Abdallah, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. 
You can find Christopher Fawner, Dr. Fawner, at Fawner916. And you can find Dr. Keller on the uh, second floor of the main building of the medical school. <laughs> Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Ba Namani for the music. Thank See you, you later.